workers in the United Methodist Church brought her in this week. She is um, one of their young favorites, I suppose, and she's doing work with them on uh, one of their Bible studies and several things. She's an author. She's an accomplished gal. Um, she's doing incredible work, from what I understand, in Costa Mesa at First United Methodist, revitalizing that congregation. So when I knew she was going to be here, I told her, I really, really, really want you to speak for me. So... She's been down visiting family the last couple of days, and they drove back up from Alabama. That's where your brother lives, and mom and dad came with her. So I told her, you guys are really nice, so I want you to smile and receive her well and let Sarah know how really grateful we are that she's come to speak to us. Reverend Sarah Heath, bless us now. Thank It is uh, so good to be with you. Um, I'm going to start by praying because I always think that's the best place to pray. So would you uh, pray with me? God, as we are in this space together, may the words of my mouth and the meditations of all of our hearts who are here together in this space be acceptable to you because, God, you are our rock and our redeemer. Amen. You know, the words of Paul that we just heard are words that we, we hear quite a bit. Don't be conformed to this world. Around where I live, there's all these stickers that say, not of this world. Have you guys seen those? It took me like five years to figure out what that was because it's like a weird graphic art thing. Do you guys have that here? Not of this world. It's like a t-shirt line and it's kind of this odd thing. And I was like, is that new kids on the block? I had no idea what all the letters junior hires, like One Direction, actually even more, less than that. I don't even know who the new One Direction is. But it's this weird sort of symbol, this not of this world idea that we are as Christians to somehow be other than the world and not conform. It's interesting. Scripture tells us to not be conformed, but it tells us to be transformed. And as I'm, for a very long time, I haven't fit into boxes. You know, as a, as a female clergy member, I mean, that started long ago. And I, and I knew, and my poor parents, you know, I'm glad he got them to stand up because now you know who to either thank or blame later. So that's um, it, all, anything that goes well, uh, let them know. Anything that goes wrong, let them know, and I'll just leave. Uh, but as a kid, um, I was what, um, you know, every time a parent comes up to me and says, I am so sorry for the behavior of my child in church. I'm like, no, 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 this is payback. Do you not understand? Like, every time there was children's moments, my parents would, like, shrink, like, what is she going to do now? So when I was little, I discovered I was a girl because of Star Wars. Makes sense, right? I was about three years old. And I came running in from, my neighborhood was full of boys. You have to know that it was just full of boys around my age. And I came running in just weeping and crying and angry because apparently the boy who lived across the street from me, John Andreasen, who I had a crush on from the time I think I was born to like eighth grade because I just was loyal to John. But at the time, John Andreasen and I had sort of a bit of an adversarial relationship. I would stand on the lawn and dare him to cross the street because he would get in trouble for crossing the street. <laughs> so we would play Star Wars. It was our favorite game to play. And on this day, I came running in. I was so angry. And I said to my mom, Mom, John Andreasen said I was a girl. 
And I can only imagine what my parents at that moment, being my dad's a doctor, my mom's a nurse, are like, we're pretty sure we've explained that to her. Like at that moment, like what in our parenting means that she doesn't know what a girl is. But on my street, see, to be a girl meant that you couldn't run or throw because you throw like a girl. You run like a girl. And so my mom asked further, like, why are you so upset about that now in this moment? And I said, he told me I had to be Princess Leia. Clearly, I'm Han Solo. And in this moment, my mom is like, oh, this isn't about what we thought this was about. Okay, yeah, no, you can be any character you want to be. And I'm like, Han has better boots. And if you know me now, that like shoe obsession has continued my entire life. But to, to learn in that moment that I had to play a certain role as a woman, as a little girl, and my parents are great, and so they taught me that those boxes, that this conforming boxes to culture around us, that I didn't need to fit into them. And so you can imagine as I came into the Christian culture, I didn't quite know what to do with it. Now's the time where I explain my three accents. See, I was born in Canada to a British mother, Canadian father, and moved to Mississippi. Like you do. Um, and so... So it's a very, most people's story actually is that direct line. And now live in California, right? It makes total sense. Um, so I have this accent that my friends um, have actually named. I'm British, Southern, and Canadian. So the accent you hear is Brothernadian, in case you're wondering. Yeah. So some words I sound really Southern, some words British, and some words Canadian. I realized recently I was using a saying that like none of my friends were like, you keep saying it's another kettle of fish. Why is there a kettle, and what's happening with the fish? Like my entire life, I've said things a little different. So when we moved, as you can imagine, when we moved from Canada to Mississippi, Christianity was a little different, just a, li just a smidge different uh, in Mississippi, to the point that... Uh, when I was in college, I, I really started to sort of fall in love with this idea of Jesus, but I hadn't really understood some of the cultural meanings of that. I remember the first time I, I started dating a boy when I was in, uh, in high school, and I called one of my best friends in Canada, and I said, oh my gosh, Kim, he really loves the Lord. And she was like, I have no idea what that means. <laughs> I later discovered Kim had called our friends and said, Sarah has joined a cult. <laughs> but I've seen him, and he's good-looking, and I'm thinking about also joining the cult. <laughs> so as you can imagine, when you move from one culture to the next, and you're trying to fit in in this, like, Canadian, also all of a sudden super uh, Mississippi vibe. I went to undergrad at the University of Southern Mississippi. And there I wanted to understand Christianity more. And so um, I was studying, again, I'm not really good at fitting in boxes. So I was studying uh, biology, psychology, acting, art, and communications, like you do. Um, and I didn't know what I wanted to be, but I knew that this, this God thing, this Christian thing was humming for me. And so I really wanted to learn more. And so I, I joined Again, I don't like boxes. The Methodist group and the Baptist group that had buildings beside each other, and I would often hang out in the middle, and my friends called me Metho-Baptist. 
And so it was there that I started to hear these teachings about Paul. And, and I remember people would say things like, you know, well, women can't preach and all this kind of stuff. And I had come to Christianity because my pastor growing up was a woman. It didn't make any sense to me. And so I began to joke that Paul and I had broken up in college, but occasionally we would talk about our mutual friend Jesus because I really didn't like the things Paul had to say. And it's interesting because there are many Christians that quote Paul constantly in it and then use it as clobbering material. And Romans, Romans is often used to clobber people. So what do we do with this idea of conforming versus transforming? I think sometimes when we start to make some decisions like you guys made a couple years ago that feels to many people outside of your community like you are conforming to the culture around you. I've noticed more and more as things start to shift in community, people are holding on tighter to what they think is what the Bible is telling us. They're so afraid of conforming. You can almost see them white knuckling these things. Is that conforming to the culture? Has my church and allowing me and allowing me to be their pastor conforming to the culture? Are they ignoring the Bible? It's interesting because I think what actually is happening is for those of us who are kind of feeling this Holy Spirit sort of wave, this thing that feels new and hard and different, that's transforming. Transforming. And transformation, as we're told in the scripture, happens through the renewing of our minds. The renewing of our minds. You know, to look at scripture this way, to understand scripture as this living and breathing word is just absolutely revolutionary for some people. See, a lot of people that said some of the worst things to me in college. I remember when I, when I got into Duke for a seminary, I was so excited. And I ran to tell one of my friends. And I said, I'm, I got into Duke. I get to go and study. And she said, but you're a woman. All of a sudden, I remember that little girl who at three was told there were roles she could not play because she was a girl. What do we do? With all of this? How do we deal with scripture? See, some of my friends within my own tradition, they've decided the best thing to do is to act like the Bible is that like weird family member that you like, you would kind of like, and they say sweet things every now and then, but like in general, you don't want to hang out with that that much. And if you just kind of ignore it at family gatherings, no one else has that relative. Mom and dad, it's not you, just so you know. Have this sense of like, do I have to, if I believe these things, if the Spirit is telling me I should be inclusive and that I should care if women are in leadership, I should care about what racial reconciliation looks like, if I care about these things, do I need to throw the Bible out? I think the answer is no. Obviously, because I do this for a living. But because I think when we really get into it, when we really talk about it, what we're doing is actually falling more and more in love with Scripture. Brian McLaren recently said um, on a podcast that I love, if you, if you are having trouble with Scripture, can I just recommend a podcast for you? It's called The Bible for Normal People. 
I loved the title, first of all, and then every interview has been incredible. It's scholars and people who sort of flip their mind on how they understand the Bible, and you discover they are more in love with Scripture than they ever have been. Brian McLaren said this, so many of us have been taught to teach, like to understand the Bible as a textbook, as a textbook for how we're to live. But if it is a textbook, then it is a math textbook. See, a math textbook doesn't give us the answers, does it? It gives us the questions. I know your pastor cares a lot about this because you even do midrashic reading, which is to read, to understand, to like argue. To If you've ever been to Israel, you will see that the, uh, the Jews will stand around, the rabbis will stand, and they will argue over scripture. And I, if you've ever done Enneagram work, I'm a two with a three wing. So arguing makes me really uncomfortable. But that is how we are to transform our minds to dig into scripture, to not just believe what our pastor says in front of us, to really question it. And I think it's very, very much like human relationships. How do we know when we're done with someone? When we stop asking questions about them, when we stop caring, when we stop engaging them. One of my favorite theologians, Johnny Cash, he was um, the prophet Johnny. He was completely in love with June Carter Cash, and yes, I've watched that movie way too much. Um, I love it so much. I think the idea of just their love, and I know it, like a lot of people got hurt in it, but just let me have my moment. I love, someone asked Johnny, how do you stay in love with June Carter Cash? Like, why are you still so fascinated? Like, why are you still years later so in love with her? You can't do anything without her. And he said this, I can never figure her out. I don't understand her. He constantly questioned her. When we stop questioning scripture, when we just take it as it is, when we don't dive into figuring out like what is going on around it and we just use it as a weapon and we just quote it on lovely t-shirts and we put it on bumper stickers, the Bible said it, I believe it, that settles it. We are no longer in love with scripture. To really be in love with this idea of scripture, it requires us to wrestle with it. And Paul calls this the renewing of our mind. It is an active process. It's not just something that happened like a long time ago and then all of a sudden, you know, okay, well, I've done a little bit of reading of scripture. I'm done. That's great. I'm done. You are to constantly be in this relationship. And we're told that we're to be a living sacrifice. Living sacrifice, by the way, was a great punk band in the 90s. Did anyone else listen to them? I was a sorority girl at the University of Southern Mississippi. Remember the time I told you I don't like boxes? Um, so I like really liked hardcore punk music, which was only funny because I'd show up in like my like preppy clothes and like go listen to punk. But I loved living sacrifice, this punk band. And they all had this scripture on them, tattooed. I actually won Lee Snobby three times in my sorority, and they said we always know who Sarah Heath State is because it looks like a member of Blink-182. My parents can attest to the numbers of earrings I brought into our home. Living sacrifice. I knew there was something really meaningful in it. But as I looked at the language around this, 
living sacrifice. You are to present your bodies as a living sacrifice. Bodies is plural. Sacrifice is singular. We, as a unit, are to present our bodies as a living sacrifice, as something that we do together. To understand that, you know, for Paul, there's this huge just problem. For Paul loves sin. He doesn't love sin. He hates sin, but he loves to talk about it, right? In fact, many people think that the book of Romans is about kind of how to avoid hell. Like the entire book of Romans is just like, here are the top ten reasons and things to do to avoid hell. And some people actually treat the whole Bible like that. If you do these things, you avoid hell. But that just doesn't, that is like a really wordy way to tell us. If there was just like a couple of answers to how to avoid this thing that we think is called hell, like it should just be like a pamphlet, right? There are all these words and stories and problems and things we're supposed to dig into. There's something worth so much more in this. Romans is more than just about how to avoid hell. And it starts here in this section with therefore, and what he's talking about before, before we get here in Romans, he's talking about this idea of wholeness and sin and being separated from God and what we need to do to come to our wholeness. And what I love about Paul is that salvation is this idea of letting go of being held captive. What did sin look like? Sin looked like the inability to control our own bodies. He uses a lot of this language of of slavery to be held captive. We think about slavery or the oppression of people. Really, it's an entire issue about not being able to control your own body. Sin inability to control our own body. So how do we come into wholeness? Well, wholeness is about our body and our mind. It can't just be freeing our mind. We have to also free our bodies. Again, living sacrifice, reminding us that we are an incarnational people. For Paul, it was all about like the fact that your body, you don't just like throw it away. Though Everything that we do matters. We are an embodied people. What we do with the body is as important as what we do with our mind. I like to think of this as imagination, an embodied imagination. We're to rethink things, and it's a constant changing. You know, I love scripture because it's the living word. It's not just written. It keeps being rewritten as we look at it together, and we wrestle with it. There are things I hate about it. There are things I love about it. And I want to just constantly renew my mind because renewing is engagement. It's engagement. It takes all of me. To be a living sacrifice, to not be conformed to the world means that I need to seek transformation constantly. Again, I can't just settle myself on certain matters and then go with it no matter what the Holy Spirit tells me. And that's really hard for me as a United Methodist because if it's not in my bulletin, I'm not supposed to do it. We joke that if Jesus showed up in the middle of a United Methodist service, we'd be like, I'm so sorry, you are actually not on the bulletin, so I'm going to need you to, like, just wait a minute, and then maybe at the end during the greeting we can introduce you. <laughs> like, it's not in here. But I have to be open. Now, what's interesting is we start with this we business, right? We start with this 
I business, right? I am a living sacrifice. And then we move into this interdependence, togetherness. See, it goes from this independence, interdependence into the ecclesia within this transformation. It starts with me. And you know this because some of you started having problems with the way that you were thinking a little while ago. And then you hung out with some people from your church and then you kind of had these whispers, these moments like, you don't think that either? And then all of a sudden, your church started to grumble and hum. And all of a sudden, it went from this independent to interdependent to ecclesia or gathered body. And this is what the scripture does. It starts out with living sacrifice. And it starts about talk about how we are connected. We are independent. And yet, we are interdependent. Christianity in America has done a lot to make us believe that it is ourselves, our relationship with Jesus. I brought one of my really good friends from Canada. Again, I like weirding my friends out. I remember when I told my aunt, I was like, I'm going to go to seminary and I'm going to become a reverend. And she looked at me and said, but you're so irreverent. Like an irreverent, like no one knew what to do. So my friends came and visited me uh, from Canada. And you have to understand, they, they hadn't grown up in the Christian church at all. They really hadn't grown up in like Christian contemporary music world. And so um, have you ever noticed how weird the words are sometimes? You will when you invite your friends who have never been to a church before. So my friends um, came with me to church and this was back in the 2000s. So there was a lot of like uh, Lamb of God songs. And uh, my friends were sitting there and they were like, like, and I'm like, I'm into it, hands up. Oh, I love this. Um, and I turn around, and my friend, he's like white as a ghost, and he says, Sarah, um, the youth, because I was a youth volunteer at this time, the youth were singing songs about being sacrificed. And also, like, there was a lot of blood in, the, in this. It's a lot of blood. And I don't, is there always this much blood? Is that part of this thing? And I had to spend the rest, like, Steve, I'm so sorry. Like, let me just explain to you, like, all this kind of stuff. And they're like, I don't know that I could ever do that again. It's a weird thing we're part of, right? To, like, be in love with Jesus, to try to explain that to the world outside, it's a difficult thing. But it's beautiful and it's transformational and it really takes us and it's a movement and it never stops. It's, again, it's all of us. It's difficult because the world is constantly trying to conform us into something. And I think sometimes we've got it wrong about how the world's trying to conform us. I mean, you can no longer in California go to the gas station without watching a TV screen telling you about all the ways that you don't measure up in the world. You know, I was like... I went and got a, I don't normally drink sugar drinks, but I had gone and gotten like a a Coke, which I never drink. And I um, like was getting gas and all of a sudden the screen comes on, right? And they're like, did you know that you could lose 15 pounds or less? And I'm like, who told them? We are inundated with things that are trying to conform us to understand ourselves as consumers. We are consumers. In the church culture, we haven't lost out on that. We're part of that, right? We use even language that's consumer. You hear things like, well, I'm shopping around for a church right now. 
I don't really ever tell pastor jokes, but I think this is a good one. So if you could just laugh really loud. My parents are here. Don't embarrass me. So there's a guy stranded on a desert island, and a boat shows up. Finally, he's been there for years. And finally, a boat comes to save him, and they see two huts. And the guy says, well, what are these huts? Is this where you've been living? And he says, no, I've been, I've been sleeping on the beach, but, you know, that, that's my church. And he said, well, what's the other one? He said, well, that's the church I used to go to. I don't go there anymore. <laughs> oh, I'm glad you liked it. That makes me feel better. We have been taught how to be consumers. Recently, I was reading Martin Luther King's book, Strength to Love. And it's his sermon based on Romans 12, 1 through 2. And he talks about this idea of transformed nonconformity. He says this, we have been conditioned. We condition our minds and feet to move to the rhythmic drumbeat of the status quo. It is immense. Nevertheless, followers of Jesus have a higher loyalty than conformity to social responsibility. We are to embody engagement. We are to keep moving. We are to understand ourselves as part of this movement that says, I will not conform to the things around me if the things around me are not of God. And I, I am going to question those things. It's this beautiful understanding, though, that I am going to do this in community. And it's really interesting that Paul uses this language of body, isn't it? Because our bodies are fragile things, and we need all parts of it to be working. You know, one part hurts, and the rest of us feels it. I'm a runner, and I was, I was running a couple of uh, months ago, and I tore my calf muscle, which is tiny, just a tiny tear. And I'm stubborn, and so I kept trying to run, but I couldn't run. And it was so frustrating for me because I was training for a half marathon, and all I wanted was to run this marathon. But one tiny little tear affected the rest of the body. That's what it's like in the church when we are not including people, when we are so conformed to the world around us that we're not transforming ourselves, when we're not including people, weaving them into the narrative. We are actually sort of ignoring that one pain that is happening, and we just drag the body along. And I would argue that we are missing out on the gospel. It's interesting because Paul would have been used to a place, there was a healing temple that Paul would have gone to. And if your body part was hurting, you would go and stay overnight and you would um, get cake and honey, this is true. And you would, if it healed, if your body part healed, you would then leave a statue of that body part. And so can you imagine how weird that was? A temple just full of body parts that had been healed? Like a statue representation, you wouldn't actually leave your body part there. So the people were used to a disembodied or a spread apart understanding of faith. And so when Paul steps in and says, no, 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 let's like, bring everything together. I'm so grateful for the ways that we as a body of Christ have different parts that look differently. And it, it, we're in a painful time, aren't we? We feel very discombobulated. But if we are going to be faithful to this call to live out 
as believers, then we are going to have to say, God, I am willing to look around and not conform myself to this, but instead be transformed by the renewing of my mind. And I know that to renew my mind, I need to stay engaged. I need to stay engaged. And even when I don't like things, I need to ask more questions of it because there's nothing worse than the silence of a relationship that's done and nobody's asking any questions. The beautiful part of all of this is that we know in a weird way that we're on the winning team. And by this, I mean one of my favorite professors was Dr. Peter Story. And I talk about this story all the time because I, I remember it was a night class and I could never stay awake. And he told this story. And I want to end with this story even though it's not mine because I think it's so powerful. Because right now it can feel like we're losing the people who are really trying to live out this gospel life that's inclusive and loving. It just feels like everyone is at us and it is painful and harmful. And Dr. Story tells this story. See, he was the white bishop we don't hear a lot about during apartheid. Him and Desmond Tutu were best friends, which I just thought was so cool because I'd be in class and he'd be like, sorry, I was late, Desmond called. And I'd be like, Tutu, Desmond Tutu called him. And he said that one time they were having a church service together and it was the two of them. If you can imagine this moment right now, it was so shocking for them to have a blended mixed race service but they were still having it. And this is when everything was at its worst. And friends, I'll tell you, I think there is a death rattle for things when it's ending. It gets louder, doesn't it? When things are changing, people hold on and there is this death rattle. And some of us get discouraged. And so into it, the people, they decided they were going to worship together as one church, black and white, during apartheid. Which, by the way, was not okay. So in the midst of it, troopers came in. Stormtroopers, not the kind of stormtroopers from Star Wars. I would have been excited about that. But they came in and they were in full riot gear. And Dr. Story said he could feel this knot like, what are they going to do? Are they going to arrest us again? Because there had already been um, bombs sent to their home and he's just nervous. And all of a sudden, Desmond Tutu starts to giggle like you do when there's people with guns in your church. I know that I am actually in Tennessee, so some of y'all may have guns right now. I don't know. I don't know how that works. And Desmond comes to the mic, and with this delighted, childlike Desmondness, says, oh, I have seen you've come to join the winning team. Please take a seat. And the soldiers didn't know what to do because they were supposed to arrest these two guys, but it's church. And they were like, well, we're church people. So they took their guns and went and sat on the back view. And they finished the service. And Peter said, his words just rung in his head, I see you've come to join the winning side. And that was at the worst. Friends, my hope for you is whatever you feel like right now is at its worst that you would hold on to this hope. Like Paul reminds us, if we are transforming our minds, that God's in that. And that's the winning side. And the great part of it is, in Canada we were taught everybody wins, which made for really awkward school games as a child. But this idea, you know, this idea of scarcity that we hear so much that if you win, I can't, that's not the kingdom of God. 
The kingdom of God is actually like you win and I extra win. We're all winning. Will you pray with me? God, we want to have this embodied imagination. But we'll admit that sometimes we get afraid. We conform to the world around us and what we're sold and told. And we begin to believe that somehow we're losing out. Would you help us fall more in love with scripture and more in love with you? And God, if we're most afraid, will we feel your presence? Lord, we thank you for this space and this place. Amen. Back in the old Pentecostal days growing up, I remember we had women preachers. And I remember one of my friends said to me, I don't believe in women preachers, but we sure do have some good ones. <laughs> um, Steve and Barbara, 21 years ago, back when we were at Christ Church, in a space of a month and a half, some things you said just reminded me of this in the wake of Dr. Graham's death this week. In the space of a month and a half, my mentor, L.H. Hardwick, took me to two meetings. One of the great benefits of being with a man like L.H. Hardwick was his connections. In a group of eight people, I was a young 28, 29-year-old minister. I sat with Dr. Graham and Brother Hardwick and a few others. And um, it came to a point where it was appropriate for me to ask a question. And I asked him if he had any regrets. And without hesitation, Dr. Graham looked at me and said in 1965, I was asked to join the march from Selma to Montgomery, one of the three 54 or three marches in that 54 mile space. And I remember Dr. Graham looked away from me. He looked out a window and almost as if he were musing to himself, he said, I made one of the largest mistakes of my life as I told Dr. King there in the early months of 1965 I told him that I could not be distracted by secondary issues because God had called me to share the gospel and he said these years later I have come to understand that those marches were the gospel and I will never forget as a highlight of my life, hearing Dr. Graham say, I would give 10 of my best crusades to go back and be able to march in Selma. I asked him, I said, what made you change your mind? He said, I read the Bible. And I could have said, you mean that Bible that you've been reading your whole life? But it is a transformative book. Jesus said, you have heard it said, but I say unto you, and that is the continuing work of the Holy Spirit to ever be unfolding scripture. A month and a half later, I sat with Brother Hardwick, Ralph Abernathy, and a few other of Dr. King's cohorts in Atlanta. And I don't remember which one of them it was, but one of them had an old reel-to-reel -reel tape, and he put it on an old reel-to-reel -reel machine, and it was a testimonial by Dr. King about his faith. Uh, I've since talked to a couple of his children, and none of them know how to locate this, but um, I remember listening to that tape of Dr. King, 
as he, a year before his death, said and admitted that he was a nepotistic young preacher. He was the son of a preacher and the grandson of a preacher. He told the thresholds of pulpits based upon the faith of his fathers and his ancestors. But after matriculating to Boston University, doing graduate studies there, finally finishing his PhD, he said he became bereft of faith and the faith that many of us grew up with, the fundamentalism, the fear-based God, uh, the some win and some lose, all of that drained out the bottom of his feet. Dr. King said, my biggest problem was with the Bible. This book that had been so weaponized, this book that had been used um, to devastate um, people, even my people. And he said, but I knew in order to do the work that I was doing with the civil rights community that I needed a platform, and it seemed that platform was uh, very well served by the pulpit and by the church. So I'm listening to this on the reel to reel. Dr. King said one day as he was preparing for a sermon in 1 Peter, he began to read 1 Peter 2, and 1 Peter 2, he said he realized was his most devastatingly hated scripture. This spokesman at Pentecost, now late in life, reading or writing an epistle, said, Slaves, be submissive to your masters. I remember when we made the inclusion statement for the LGBT and hundreds and hundreds of times over, all of us heard people say, but the Bible is plain. The Bible is clear. You want a clear scripture? 1 Peter 2, the scripture that Dr. King read. Slaves, be submissive to your masters, even if they beat you without cause. For to this you were called by Christ. King said, I lifted the book to throw it across the room, and I thought, I'm going to walk away from this, and I'm never going to read this book again. But something inside of me spoke and said, read it again, Martin. And he said, begrudgingly with teeth gritted, I looked at that text and I read, slaves be submissive to your masters even if they beat you without cause. For to this you were called by Christ. For Christ left us an example who when reviled, reviled not again, but trusted himself into the hands of him who judges righteously. And all we like sheep have gone astray, but have been brought home by the shepherd of our soul. And King said in that moment, it was like lightning hit him. And he realized this scripture was not defending slavery any more than it was defending the crucifixion of a good man, much less a God. This scripture was simply saying in a world where despicable, horrible things happen, God is so economic and redemptive, he can even take that which is most evil and utilize it to redeem those who have actually perpetrated it. And King said, now the scripture that almost made me walk away from Christianity became the scripture along with Gandhi's work on which I built the foundation of nonviolent resistance and led the movement. It's not the Bible that changes. It's the transformative process that this wonderful pastor just explained to us of a community living, breathing, wrestling, imagining with a book that is ever alive. I am grateful for a place like Grace Point to be able to do that. I love the Bible more than I ever have. Thank you, Reverend Sarah Heath. That was just right. Would you tell her one more time how grateful?